First, I uh, just to introduce myself to those of you that don't know me. My name is David Honeycutt. I'm the preaching minister here at Deer Run. I share the preaching duties with Brother C.J. Powell that you met earlier. And uh, just uh, want to welcome all of you here. We are uh, getting ready to dive back into the book of Daniel. We were in Daniel for, uh, for a while back uh, in the fall. And now we're coming back to Daniel once again. We'll be in chapter 7 a little later on in the service. I also uh, want to take opportunity to thank Brother Carl for his message last week. Brother Carl, appreciate you so much, man. You do a great job and did a wonderful job with the preaching last week. Thank you, Carl. I appreciate your ministry. Well, as we get back into what I think is one of the most fascinating books in the Bible, this book of Daniel, one of the reasons that I think it holds that place in my mind is its blend of simple yet exciting stories that we're so very quick to tell all of our children. I mean, who of us have not talked about Daniel and the lion's den or the three brave men that were thrown into the fire? I mean, just such incredibly uh, simple stories and yet very profound in terms of their application to our lives. But at the same time, we find in this great book um, mysterious visions and prophecies that often baffle the best of scholars. Um, as I said earlier back in the fall, we took about six weeks retelling the stories in the first half of the book. And so now over these next seven Sundays, we'll examine the more complicated part of the book. I, I don't want you to let that scare you off. As is always the case when God writes something down for his children, he not only wants us to understand it, he wants to use it to bless us and to encourage us. In other words, this is really good stuff, and you will not want to miss this. There will be something every week, something that every one of us can take with us to use so that we can live lives better as children of God. But I don't want to lie to you. There are some things in this book that are hard to understand. So I want to begin with a two-part disclaimer. Part one, the interpretation that C.J. and I give to the prophecies in this book, our interpretations of them, they are not in and of themselves inspired, except where Scripture itself explains itself. Um, the book is inspired, but not what we have to say about the book. Uh, some will disagree with where we land on certain points, and that's okay. None of us are perfect, including C.J. and myself. So as best as we can, we'll immerse ourselves and each sermon that is preached in diligent study and prayer in order to give you what we believe God wants all of us to see from his word. Second disclaimer, it is not our intent to show you every detail of every line of every prophecy as we preach, neither time or my guess is the majority of you sitting out there will allow for that. 
you guys have to get home so you can go to bed tonight. So, uh, we will not be taking the entire day on this. But as we've been doing for a while, we will have follow-up studies each Wednesday night, uh, follow-up studies of the previous Sunday's sermon, uh, and we'll do that in the class entitled, But Preacher, What About? And um, even that will not answer every question. So what we'll try to do is to point you to resources that both CJ and I believe will help you get a deeper grasp of the book. And one such resource has been developed by a local minister by the name of Thomas Short. How many of you have heard of Thomas Short? Thomas is the preaching minister at the Elkhart East Church and was actually a part of the original team that started Deer Run back in 1998, and he remains a good friend of our ministry. His website, intotheword.net, again, intotheword.net, is a free resource sustained by donations that does a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. And it also has a number of special studies. And one of those special studies is entitled Living in the Last Days Prophecy Seminar. A number of you heard Thomas present this, I believe, up at camp last year. And uh, he's actually done that several times. Uh, It's very well done. comes out in a PDF format. You can read through it. It's got a lot of information. Um, It's a detailed study of prophetic literature concerning the end times. And having known Thomas now for nearly 30 years, I can safely say he is unmatched in his ability to paint a complete picture of Bible concepts. Again, you may not agree with all of his conclusions, but his insights are well worth the effort. Okay, with all that said, let's dig in. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a, it was like a lion. And it had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were, were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, Another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I I consider the horns, and behold, there came up uh, among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn 
were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne, his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. I looked and then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, ah, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, you are so great. You are so good. You provide us with everything that we need. You have even, Father, brought us together into this place as one family to share together of one spirit, to hear from your word so that you can provide wisdom and direction for the days ahead. None of us know what tomorrow will hold, but we are so glad that you hold us. And Father, for that blessing, we give you praise. We pray, Father, that as our time together continues today. As you speak to our hearts, oh, Father, if there is someone here that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord, I pray today will be the day of salvation. The day that that individual becomes a child of God, born again. I pray, Father, that they will surrender themselves to you. Repent of their sins. Come believing trusting that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and then have their sins forever washed away by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray today will be the day of salvation. Father, for those of us who already know what it is like to be your children, your sons and your daughters, I pray that you will teach us, I pray that you will teach us how to be better, how to be, how to be more productive as your children, to reach out to a world that is lost and in sin, 
And not just tell them the gospel, but show them the gospel. So, Father, by your Spirit, empower your children. And I pray, Father, that you will draw every person in this room closer to you. Oh, Father, we pray all of these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Evangelist Bob Russell tells of a discussion that he had with a group of fellow preachers concerning the end times. Russell said that each preacher did as preachers tend to do, offering their own version of what they thought such and such a scripture was talking about, about this theory and that. Uh, uh, amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, post-trib, pre-trib, in every position imaginable each providing what they thought, convincing evidence that they were right. Finally, one of them said, well, I don't know about all that, but I I do believe when we get to heaven, everyone's going to have a flat head. A a flat head, someone asked, to which he replied, yeah, you know, we'll get there and we'll find out how everything really happened and then we'll exclaim, oh, that's what he meant, that's what he meant. Think about it a minute. You know, there truly are a, a lot of things that we simply do not understand about the end times. And, and frankly, I, I'll be the first to say that there are things that we will not understand about the end times until, well, until, we, until we're there. But that shouldn't discourage us from examining what we do know, including what we find in Daniel. And what we find in Daniel spans the generations from his own time all the way down to the present. Much energy is spent attempting to discover just where and how his visions fit into world history, past, present, and future. Some see most of Daniel as describing events still to come. Others see all of it as prophecy that, at least from our perspective, has already been fulfilled. A foretelling of events completed no later than, well, the late first century. I find myself somewhere in between. Many of Daniel's visions clearly refer to events in history from Daniel's day. Uh, right down to Rome's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In fact, they do so in such details, uh, skeptics actually doubt that they are prophecies at all, but that they were actually things written down after the events and then labeled prophecies by those who wanted people to think that that's what they really were. In fact, there is so much of this that that becomes something that even affects some believers. But those who truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that God is who he said he is, they understand what prophecy really is. See, prophecy really has more to do with God's encouragement of his children It's God's way of providing evidence that he is truly God. It's like, think of it as God putting his fingerprints on history 
So future generations will know that God has been there all along. Now, there are certainly events in Daniel that have no historical, um, no historical equivalent whatsoever, at, at least not yet. Events best viewed as taking place in our own future, even at the very end. Now, I, I can remember as, as a child, I, I grew up uh, during the days of Hal Lindsey. Some of you that are a little older remember Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. And I can remember, I can actually remember sitting and seeing the charts that would be laid out. And this is what this means, and this is what this means. Having almost all of it, almost all of these prophecies as things still yet to come, but rather easily identified by whoever the speaker was with whichever nation was the focus of their attention at the time. And, and I understand that. I understand it because there are truly things in Daniel, in Revelation, in Jesus' prophecies that have not happened yet, and they are to come. Some of them parallel with the prophecies. Some of the things in Daniel parallel with prophecies in the New Testament so closely. And these definitely describe the last days before the Lord's return. And what we'll try to do, CJ and I, we'll try to point these out as we go along. But there is one thing that is true throughout not only Daniel, but all prophetic literature in the Bible, and it is common to it all. What has been written was never intended to be a calendar of upcoming events to be posted on the fridge and checked off as each occurs. That's not the purpose. What was written has been written to embolden and encourage our faith. Those who don't yet believe should see and stop their doubting. Those who already believe should see and frankly get to work knowing that God is in control. You see, he's got this because he's got us and he won't let go and he won't let us down. Years ago, a sister came to my office having just finished a book about the end times that absolutely terrified her. As we talked and we prayed together, I reminded her of the promises of God, that He has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. It is not as if somehow that promise disappears from the scene when certain things happen. He is still with us. He doesn't tell us what He tells us in order to frighten us. He tells us what He tells us to reassure us that He already knows what is going to happen and He promises to get us through it and He always keeps His promises. In fact, it is my belief that sprinkled throughout Daniel's visions and dreams are various reminders to simply keep trusting in God. In fact, it would be good as you go through the book of Daniel to just write out in the margin every time that you sense the Spirit saying, hey, this is for you. I just want to remind you, keep trusting me. Just write that in the margin of your Bible so that it becomes a reminder throughout your lifetime just how good and how awesome is our God. Now, I believe 
that we can be sure of that. I know there are some that question whether or not God is worthy of our trust because they'll point at things in their life and they will say, well, but how can this happen if God's really in control? How, how, can, how can you say we can trust him when the wheels came off back here and, and I wasn't sure what to do and I wasn't sure where to turn? But how can you say that God can be trusted? For you, I want to point to just a couple of things from our text that point out how trustworthy our God truly is. Let's, let's go back to the text. And the first thing that we see is that God is personally involved in history. Every bit of it. Someone has said that history is simply the gradual unfolding of his story. Nothing has happened or ever will happen that does not involve God in some way. Not that God causes everything to happen, like some puppeteer in the sky. Now, when God made mankind, he designed us with free will and the ability to choose right from wrong. Our original parents eventually chose to rebel so that now what we see all around us, all the pain and trouble, sickness and suffering, death and destruction. See, it's all a result of that rebellion. Sin stains everything. There is no such thing as a harmless sin. It is rebellion against God. And the only solution for that sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. So God designed history from the very beginning with Jesus as the focal point. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, the Savior is coming. The Savior is coming. Don't be afraid. The Savior is coming. I'm sending my anointed one. From the very beginning, he has told us that so that we could look forward to the Messiah. And we could look forward to God giving us a Savior. Then the, the Gospels arrive, the good news and its message is the Savior is here. His name is Jesus. And from the resurrection on until, well, until the very last day, it is Jesus' coming again. See, it's all His story. Daniel 7 tells part of that story using a vision given to Daniel in a dream. It was the first year of Belshazzar's reign in Babylon City. Uh, we met Belshazzar back in Daniel 5, and you may recall that Belshazzar is a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Belshazzar was the adopted heir of the man most recognized as the last king of the Babylonian Empire, a man by the name of Nabonidus. But due to a series of events which caused him to uh, fear for his life, Nabonidus spent the last 10 years of a 17-year reign hundreds of miles from the city of Babylon, having left Belshazzar there as a co-regent to, to rule in his stead. And Daniel 7 takes place right after Belshazzar came to the throne. As chapter 7 begins, Daniel has a dream, a dream in which he sees four great beasts, each according to later verses, representing a significant world kingdom. The first, a, a winged lion. There's no doubt from the rest of the book that this winged lion 
is uh, the dominant empire of that day, that it represents Babylon. But as had already been foretold way back in Daniel 2, that empire would be overtaken by another. In this dream, that second kingdom, portrayed as a bear raised up on one side, was the Medo-Persian empire. The three ribs in its mouth, likely the three kingdoms that they immediately conquered as they ascended to power. Uh, Babylon in what is now Iran, uh, the Ladeans of modern Turkey, and the North African nation of Egypt. Next came a leopard, pictured as having four wings and four heads. And again, historically, an obvious reference to Alexander's empire, the Macedonian Greeks who rose swiftly from his leadership, but then jolted by his sudden death, a death without a male heir, was divided into four parts. Each part maintained power for, for years, but not, in the, not to the same extent. Finally, a fourth beast came on the scene, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong, with great iron teeth, devouring, breaking to pieces, stamping what was left with his feet. This fourth beast represented not only the Roman Empire, which would become very obvious through Old Testament history, but its various horns would represent nations arising out of Rome, what we now call Western civilization. Some believe that this last beast parallels the dragon of John's revelation, and that this little horn that came up last with eyes like a man, and speaking great boastful words, that that horn symbolizes the final world ruler described in Revelation who will seek to dominate the whole earth and who will only be overcome by the second coming of Jesus. But I want you to notice what takes center stage, or better, who takes center stage at this very moment. Daniel describes him as what? The Ancient of Days. He sits on a flaming throne with wheels of fire. I love that idea of wheels. It takes you back to Ezekiel, right? It takes you back to, to something that is constantly moving and yet remains the authoritative place. This Ancient of Days is served and worshipped by holy ones, uh, saints and angels, I believe. And their number, uh, actually the words, those phrases that are used there, is a euphemism that refers to uh, a number that cannot be calculated. His is more than a throne room. It's a courtroom in which books for judgment are opened, ready to disperse divine justice. This ancient of days can be none other than the eternal Father, our God. But even as the scene unfolded, Daniel gets distracted, right? He gets distracted by the noise coming from this talking horn, a noise soon muted as the beast is killed and consigned to be burned up. Other beasts were appointed a period of time to continue on earth, who was a very different ruler in charge this time. 
As down through the clouds, down through the clouds of heaven comes one like a son of man. What do you think of when you think of the son of man? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Jesus, that's right. Jesus. He comes to the ancient of days and he is presented before him. And to him, the son of man, Jesus, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Could this be the beginning of Christ's millennial reign on this earth? It sure does seem to be. Regardless how one interprets these events, though. And I, look, I get it. I get it. There are different, different interpretations of this, and I understand that. But I want you to see this. God is involved in it all. From beginning to end and beyond. No matter how history unfolds, it's God who unfolds it. And we can take great encouragement from a God who is involved in all of history. Right down to your history. Oh, what a God. But not only is our God involved in history, our God's involvement guarantees victory for His people. In the middle of Daniel's dream, he has what I think is a strange reaction to what he sees. I don't know. If I'm seeing this, now again, I'm looking at this, you know, 2,500 years after the fact. There's been a lot of stuff happened since then, right? And Daniel is seeing this fresh. He hasn't read the rest of the book of Daniel yet. And so as he looks on, although we might expect celebration or joy or at least a sigh of relief. Not Daniel. Because he hasn't read the rest of the story, not just the story about his dream, but the rest of the story of the gospel, he starts to put in his own mind the fact that he is still yet an exile. He is a foreigner. He is little more than a glorified slave, particularly under Belshazzar. God had promised a return of his people to their homeland. But Daniel's still waiting. Oh, you've been there, right? You've been there. You read the promises of God. You expect the promises to, to, to come a certain way at a certain time. Of course, we all want it now. God says, wait. We don't like to wait. God says trust. And we say, but how? And I would imagine as Daniel is seeing these visions, as he's watching these things take place, that he must be wondering. He must be like many of the Old Testament prophets who did not fully understand the significance of the coming of the Son of Man, either his first coming or his second. And then there were those scenes of judgment and fire. So much fire. So, just like we experience at times, Daniel had an anxious spirit. 
His visions alarmed him. So he went to one who should know, apparently an angel of God, and asked him what all this meant. The angel explained about the beast and the kingdoms that they represented. And then he added this. I I love this, verse 18. It's, It's as if he's trying to get Daniel to see the good in all that he has seen. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. But even that didn't seem to satisfy Daniel. He wanted still more information, particularly about that fourth beast, so different, so terrifying, the stuff of nightmares. And what about those ten horns and and that other horn and the three horns that seemed to supplant? Well, God gave him an answer, maybe, maybe not the one he expected or even wanted. But no doubt exactly what he needed. And even as Daniel looked on, the horn made war against the saints. And it looked for all the world as if that horn would prevail. The beast, the ten horns, that little boastful horn grew to dominate everything. It spoke against God. It wore out his saints. The interesting word in, in the Hebrew, it means to rub out. You know, we, we use that term in, you know, you hear it in movies. So-and-so was rubbed out. And you think, well, that's new. Well, no, it's not. Because here, it is being spoken of as what? This little horn and particularly his boss, Satan, was trying to do to the saints. Rub them out. He was seeking to erase every vestige of the Almighty from the very world that the Almighty had created. Imagine what must be going through the mind of God as God looks down at his creation and he knows there's an enemy. He understands that. He knows that there is a tempter. He gets that. He has given us everything that we need to battle that. And yet, how many times do we give in to the enemy? How many times do we forget who is in charge and who is in control? You know, we see this type of warfare today. The freedoms that we have in our nation are due only to the grace and blessing of God. Yet that very God who was so prominent in the words and actions of our founding fathers have slowly but surely been removed from nearly every arena of public life. God is no longer welcome. God is no longer invited. Well, except in emergencies. How many of you remember 9-11? Remember 9-11? Oh God, help us, help us. The world's falling apart. The world's falling apart. I saw grown men fall down on their faces because of what was going on. Because suddenly they thought to themselves, this is it. This is the end. And so these ones that ignored him completely suddenly are crying out to God. And yet by 10-11, they had forgotten all about that and had forgotten all about God, and God had resumed his status as an unwanted stranger, relegated and confined to church buildings only. We can almost feel the rub of the enemy 
as he seeks to wear out the saints, to wear them into oblivion. Just as Satan thinks he's got us where he wants us, just when he thinks he has worn us out, what happens? The Son of Man, the Son of God, splits the sky and comes to rescue his people and judge the earth. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away. That is the dominion of that oppressor of the saints. The one who thought he had the upper hand, right? That individual will be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. How big is the whole heaven? I always love it when a writer, a prophet, throws in words. He could have said, all the nations under heaven. But it's as if he's out there and he's thinking to himself, just in case you think God has missed a corner. That there's some closet someplace. There's some place where God doesn't see, where God cannot help. You say to yourself, well, I know what God did for them. They can't do that for me. You don't understand my problems. You don't understand my issues. I've got it up to here. I, God can't help me. Not with what I've got. Huh. You don't know God. The whole heaven. That includes wherever you are, wherever you will be, no matter where, no matter what. He's got this because he's God. The kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and dominion shall serve and obey Him. Our God is far from passive when it comes to His involvement in the lives of His people. He is ever-present, all-powerful, more than enough to meet every need. I, look, I get it. We're not used to talking about beasts. We're not used to talking about bears on their side and lions with wings that are plucked off and leopards. We're not, we're not used to that, right? So you walk away from here and you think, well, I've got these images and I've got these things in my mind. Would you please remember that? Oh, God is saying to Daniels, what he is saying to you? His involvement in history. His involvement with you. Your involvement with Him guarantees victory. No matter what we face, He is ever-present, He is almighty, and He is more than enough to handle whatever, to handle whatever. In Him and Him alone we have victory. Bottom line, our God is worthy of our trust, always. He's involved in every detail of history, and that involvement guarantees our victory, both now and forever. It's not just a matter of heaven. It's in the present that he works 
and holds us close. As Daniel's vision came to an end, the prophet was exhausted and more than a little troubled. But also he notes that he kept the matter in his heart. Now, I personally think that means more than he simply kept it to himself. How often his thoughts must have gone back to that night, that dream, that vision. In fact, it would be two years before the next recorded vision. Maybe it just took that long for Daniel to wring from this vision all that God intended. I don't know. I doubt that any of us could have handled it any better than Daniel. But I want to remind you that for every thought of some nightmarish memory of your past, for every fear of what the future may bring, there is a promise of God that is more than enough to overcome every nightmare and every fear. On the night before the crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then within a matter of hours, that promise was put to a severe test. Jesus was arrested by his enemies, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, deserted by everyone, beaten, abused throughout a night of unfair, unjust trials, and then nailed, nailed to a cross, reviled despised, broken-hearted. His broken body finally gave up his spirit, and the giver of life died. Finally shut away in a borrowed tomb. It truly looked as if the devil had finally won his war against God and us. But God, right? But God. Can you think of any greater words than those two words when they are put together? But God, three days later, made the gospel truly good news as his son Jesus commanded the grave to let him loose. And he arose. And he conquered sin. And he conquered death. And yes, he conquered the devil himself. He did so forever. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Those are more than just words. They're a promise by a God who always keeps his promise. Always. Our God is worthy of our trust. He truly is. So tell me, what will you do with Jesus? Let's pray.